Hi, everyone. I'm going to be reading Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. They will sing before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his truth. Now we go over to Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang... Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power for ever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. We are... keep the kids in in the middle week of school holidays for two reasons. One is just to give a bit of a break to all the people who serve us so faithfully by teaching the kids. The other thing is it's a really great reminder to us that the people of God, it's not just adults, it's not some people, we're made up of all all sorts of different kind of people including all different ages. 
So don't worry about the little the buzz that inevitably happens. I mean, if there's people near and you can kindly sort of go, shh, just to remind them because they can sometimes forget. But we can handle a little bit of buzz that's happening around us. It's, it's a good reminder. God cares about all of us. Well, the start of the... Um, we've been looking at the Reformation and um, the church back then was often described as, um, as... It was compared to Noah's Ark because the church was seen as the Ark of Salvation. If you wanted to be saved, you had to get on board the Ark of the church. That was the only way to be saved. But back in the Reformation, back 500 years ago, cynical people said if the church is the ark, then nobody's shoveling out the stalls. That's what they said, because it was a mess. Back, peop- back then, people actually thought that Rome was kind of like the, the centre of Christianity. But they used to joke that the closer you got to Rome, the worse the Christians got. And the popes during the time, they often said, were the worst of the lot. One of the popes, Julius II, uh, when he died, a, a scholar named Erasmus mocked him. He wrote in 1517 that Julius stood outside the, the gates of heaven and um, St. Peter wouldn't let him in. So he threatened St. Peter and he kept threatening. And in the end, Peter says to him, I see the man who wants to be regarded as next to Christ and in fact equal to him, submerged in the filthiest of all things by far. Money, power, armies, wars, alliances, not to say anything at this point about his vices. But then, although you are as remote as possible from Christ, nevertheless, you misuse the name of Christ for your own arrogant purposes. And under the pretext of him who despised the world, you act the part of tyrant of the world. And although a true enemy of Christ, you take the honour due him. We can hardly believe it now, can we? But back then, popes literally led armies. They had children to multiple women and they used their position to get ridiculously rich. 500 years ago, the church was a mess and the leaders in the church were some of the worst offenders. Pretty much everyone agreed back then that the church needed to be cleaned up. But the reformers, they came to see that just shoveling out a few stalls was not going to be enough. Scripture demanded that everything needed to be turned upside down. The church's entire approach to God at the time was wrong. It all just led to pride and self-glorification. When Scripture makes it clear that everything in this world is for God's glory alone. Initially, actually, the reformers tried to clean up the church. Martin Luther didn't want to break from the church, he wanted to change it. But very quickly they came to realise that when the whole structure is built on a a foundation that leads to pride and self-glorification, they had no choice but to move outside the corrupt church of the day. If there was one key idea that stood behind all the other ideas that drove the reformers... It was this one, God's glory alone, behind grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, scripture alone, behind them all stands God's glory alone. Our salvation and in fact everything is for God's glory alone. You see this 
time and time again in Scripture. Have a look at Romans 11, verse 33. For 11 chapters, Paul's been explaining in detail how God saves people. And finally, here at this point, after 11 chapters, he pauses and he just marvels at how amazing God is, who he is and how he works. In verse 33, he says, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. That's pretty comprehensive, don't you think? All things are from God. All things are through God. All things are for God. And so it's no wonder that Paul says, to him be the glory forever. Amen. Our salvation and absolutely everything in this world is ultimately from God, through God and for God. If we get that, then we'll realise that everything's about God's glory. Now, the Reformers didn't just believe that in abstract, as an abstract kind of idea, they lived by it. So when Martin Luther heard that people were calling themselves after him, Lutherans, he was horrified. He wrote, what is Luther? After all, the teaching's not mine, neither was I crucified for anyone. One reformer who was particularly big on God's glory alone was a shy, reserved man named John Calvin, who didn't even want to be a public figure. John Calvin was so convinced that everything is about God's glory that he wrote, we must hold this as a universal principle. Whoever glories in himself, glories against God. Today, the key idea from the Reformation that we're looking at is God's glory alone. And at the same time, we're going, to have, um, we're going to hear a tiny bit of John Calvin's story. Now, normally, like the Reformers, we, we love at TNE to just work our way through a book of the Bible. And next week, we're going to be doing that as we pick up uh, a new series. We're going to work our way through the book of Daniel. But occasionally, it's good just to stop and to look at things as, as a topic as well. That's what we're going to do today. Let me tell you a little bit about John Calvin. He was born in 1509. And you might remember that Luther nailed his 95 theses to the um, door of the church in 1517. So what that means for John Calvin is that by the time he'd grown up and joined the Reformation, it had already been underway for 15 years. Maybe that's why he had such a great insight into Scripture and, and was so big on God's glory alone because he'd benefited from the work of people like Luther. Another thing that, that probably helped John Calvin see things so clearly and logically was that he initially trained as a lawyer, because his dad wanted him to. Apparently he got himself into a bit of trouble with the church, so he needed a lawyer or something like that. But after he, his dad died, Calvin returned back to theology. But in 1533, Calvin had to flee France, his home, or be killed for believing in the ideas of the Reformation. He fled to Basel, and then in 1536, he, he had to flee to Strasbourg, 
And he was going there for a quiet life of scholarship. And had he got there, perhaps we wouldn't even be talking about him today. But because of a, a war that was happening at the time and some troops that were in the way, he had to go via a place called Geneva, which we all know about today because now it's a, a significant place. Back then it was pretty small. He was only planning to stay one night in Geneva, but when he got there, a fiery preacher named William Farrell, who knew him, tried to persuade him to stay. Not long before Calvin had arrived in Geneva, the whole town had voted to accept the Reformation and Farrell wanted Calvin to stay and help him bring the the Reformation to Geneva properly. But Calvin said, no thanks. He said he didn't have the right personality and he didn't get along with people very well. And he told Farrell about his plan to pursue a quiet life of scholarship in Strasbourg. Big mistake telling a fiery preacher that. Farrell basically said, oh no, you don't and told him off for his selfish plan. Later, Calvin put it like this, Farrell kept me at Geneva not so much by advice and entreaty as by a dreadful adjuration, as if God had stretched forth His hand upon me from on high to arrest me. So Calvin was convicted that staying and helping Farrell would be for God's glory and so he agreed. The reason Farrell wanted Calvin to stay was most likely because of Calvin's writing. Calvin had written probably the best, most thorough and and clearest explanation of the Bible's teaching that the Reformation had seen. In that work, he wrote this, man cannot without sacrilege claim for himself even a crumb of righteousness for just so much is plucked and taken away from the glory of God's righteousness. The church at the time said, for salvation, you first of all needed the church itself, with all the structures of the church. You needed the priests, you needed the bishops, you needed the Pope, and you needed all the rituals of the church. So you needed baptism, you needed penance, you needed mass. And then for salvation, you needed yourself, you needed to cooperate and contribute and put in the effort to get there. Now, Calvin and all the reformers saw that this approach, in the end, robs God of His glory. Because the question boils down to this, if I participate in salvation, do I diminish the glory of God? Or you could put it like this, if God enables me to to help build my own salvation, does that really take away from God's glory? The simple biblical answer is yes. If you help build a house, even if all the materials, the money, the tools, the plan, the training, even if that comes from someone else, if you help, there's still room to boast, isn't there? I learnt what to do so quickly and I did so well on my patch. In fact, some people say it's the best bit of the whole house. But as we saw last week in Ephesians, God makes it so clear that salvation is not from us in any regard whatsoever and so there's no room to boast. Have a look at Ephesians again, 2 verse 8. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. We're not the source of salvation. We're not partners in salvation. We're not cooperating in 
in salvation. It's all from God and through God and for God, so He gets the glory alone. If salvation is a house, we're not sharing in the building of the house. We simply get to move into what God has built. Salvation is not like grand designs where people build spectacular things for themselves. In some ways, salvation is more like housing commission. We get to move in to what God has built. Of course, what God builds is far more spectacular than what we could ever build. Now, we've already seen all this in grace alone when we looked at that. And we've seen it in faith alone last week. So I want to move on to a couple of potential problems that we might have with God's glory alone. And this is the first one. How is God seeking His own glory not selfish? You know, time and time again you read in the Bible that God seeks His own glory. Like Isaiah 42 verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. Or Isaiah 48 verse 11. For my own sake, for my own sake I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. Or in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 12. God chooses to save people in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of His glory. Now if I were to seek my own glory... It'd be selfish, wouldn't it? Be egotistical, narcissistic. Well, some people accuse God of being the same. God unashamedly seeks His own glory. So how is that not wrong? Well, I want to just talk about two reasons why it's not wrong for God to seek His own glory. First, because there's no greater good than God. And second, because there is no greater good for creation than glorifying God's goodness. Let's look at the first one. There's no greater good than God. When Isaiah gets a glimpse of God in Isaiah 6, he hears God praise like this. Barb read it at the beginning of the service. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Now, there's no greater way that you can say that God is completely holy, completely other and different to this creation. There's no greater way to say it than holy, holy, holy. God is completely beyond this creation. There's nothing in this creation that even comes close to the goodness and the glory of God. In fact, as we see here, all creation can do is just show the goodness and the glory and the wonder of who God is. So for God to be glorified and and to seek His glory is entirely appropriate because nothing else even comes close to His glory. Imagine in the Archibald Prize if all of the entries into the um, competition were kind of like what my entry would be. Here it is here. I call it Richard Austin. (laughs) Now imagine they're all like that. But then... There was one that was just in a different category completely. This is the winner, actually. There you are, you're trying to judge between all the rest and that one. Now, there's no doubt that only one portrait deserves glory, right? One is in a category all of its own. 
Well, God is infinitely, infinitely, not just somewhat, infinitely more glorious than anything in creation. God is truly glorious in a category of his own. But it gets even deeper than this. And um, this might be a a bit mind-bending for a little bit. If you need to tune out, that's fine. I think there's some more kids' pets. No, I'm kidding. But you can tune out and, and jump back on board in a second. Because it gets even more deeper than this. Because if God doesn't seek his own glory, then logically he can seek the glory of nothing. Because he's the source of all things. All things are from God, through God, and for God. So either he seeks his own glory, or there's really no alternative. God is glorious. So whatever he does, whenever he does something, anything, it's glorious. And so his decision to do anything logically has to be a decision to glorify himself. Otherwise, God could do nothing. God seeking his glory is logically necessary and completely appropriate. But it's more than just appropriate that God seeks his glory. It's part of God's glory that he seeks his glory. Now that might sound a little convoluted, so let me explain. Imagine if God didn't seek his glory. Then who would seek his glory? If God, who who stands behind everything, didn't seek his own glory, then nobody and nothing in this universe could seek his glory. And this would mean that we could never know God's glory, which means that we could never actually know God. You know, imagine there's an accident, uh, a serious one, like a a train crash or something like that, and you're a world-renowned surgeon. I know that's not too hard for you to imagine. There are people injured, okay? And someone says, these people need urgent medical attention. Who can help? Somebody puts up their hand and says, I've got a first aid certificate. Somebody else puts up their hand and says, I studied med for a year before I dropped out. Now, the right thing for you to do at that point is to put up your hand and tell the first aider and the first year med dropout that you've got this covered. They can go and get you a coffee if they want. Hiding your qualifications at that point would be terribly wrong, wouldn't it? Well, for God not to stand up as God, the most wonderful, glorious, praiseworthy being that has ever been and will ever be, would be terribly wrong. It's for our own good that God seeks his own glory. If he wasn't seeking his own glory, we'd have no hope of salvation, no hope of fulfillment, no hope of happiness, we wouldn't even exist. God seeking his own glory is actually his greatest kind, kindness to us. John Piper puts it like this, what could God give us to enjoy that would show him most loving? There's only one possible answer, isn't there? Himself. If God would give us the best, the most satisfying that is, if he would love us perfectly, He must offer us no less than himself. It's more than just appropriate that God should seek his own glory. It's part of his glory. God seeking his glory is what's best for us. Well, here's the next problem we might have. Why do we say that 
everything's for God's glory alone when the Bible talks about our glory. Have you ever noticed that? Like in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. Paul writes, And we all with, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory. See that, how the passage talks about our glory? So shouldn't we say, do things for God's glory, but not do all things for God's glory alone? Well, the great lie of the devil from the Garden of Eden to now is that we can somehow seek our glory independent of God, as though we can seek His glory and on the side seek our own glory. Now, this was Adam and Eve's mistake to seek their own glory. It was the stupidity of the Tower of Babel. They wanted to make a name for themselves. They, they wanted glory independent of God. Whereas in the very next chapter, Abraham is told that he will have glory that's entirely dependent on God because God will make a name for him. This is the problem with Israel. They sought their own glory independent of God. The fault of virtually every human kingdom and every human individual is that we seek our own glory independent of God. And when we seek our own glory independent of God, what we're actually doing is seeking our glory in defiance to God. And there are two great problems with this. First, God won't let us defy Him forever. We're going to be held accountable for grasping at His glory. And second, our quest for self-glory is actually unachievable. I mean, ours is a tragic story, isn't it? Because it's impossible for us to find glory outside of God's glory. Augustine said, He who being man wishes to appear God does not imitate him who being God became man. He who being human, us, wanting to be like God, wanting to be gods ourselves. We don't imitate the true God who actually became human for us. We try to steal the glory that belongs to God and and we fail because God's glory is not selfish and self-serving. God in Jesus becomes a human and dies for human and that's His glory. When God seeks His own glory... He seeks the good of His creation. Our glory is to be what God's created us to be. And we are created to glorify God. Our glory, if you like, is glorifying God. It's only as we seek God's glory alone that we find our glory. Now, Calvin wrote clearly and sometimes beautifully, about how everything is for God's glory. After a couple of years in Geneva, the town magistrates were trying to control what was happening in the church. They were trying to uh, say that they had to have unleavened bread when they did communion. And Calvin and Farrell didn't think they should be trying to control the church like this. So they refused one Easter Sunday to give communion to the entire town, which didn't go down too well. In fact, the town council met and they were both exiled immediately from Geneva. Now, Calvin wasn't too worried by this, it seems, because finally now he could go to Strasbourg like he wanted. 
But Geneva actually didn't do too well without these two men. And things were starting to fall apart. And a Catholic uh, leader called Sadoletto wrote to the town, calling them to come back to the Roman Catholic faith. The Council of Geneva couldn't find anyone good enough to actually write back in response to Sadoletto. So they swallowed their pride and they asked Calvin to give a response. And Calvin's response blew him out of the water. Here's just one part of his response, where Calvin writes beautifully about how our lives are to be for God's glory. He writes, It is not very sound theology to confine a man's thoughts so much to himself and not to set before him as the prime motive of his existence zeal to illustrate the glory of God. For we are born, first of all, for God and not for ourselves. As all things flowed from Him and subsist in Him, so says Paul, Romans 11.36, they ought to be referred to Him. Calvin says that what should be set before us as the prime motive of our existence is zeal to illustrate the glory of God. Is this your zeal? Is this what you want? from your life? Are you living to illustrate the glory of God? Now, it's not the case that Calvin himself always found this easy. After his reply to Sadoletto, he was actually asked to come back from Strasbourg to Geneva, to which he apparently said, I'd rather die a hundred deaths. <laughs> Literally. But Farrell, who, by the way, wasn't asked to come back to Geneva... He found out and again told Calvin off. So Calvin gave in. He didn't want to go back, but for God's glory, he did. And he stayed there for the rest of his life and God used him in amazing ways. Geneva became a place where Protestant refugees from all over Europe came, something like 7,000 of them. People from Germany, Poland, Holland, people like John Knox who returned to Scotland taking the things they'd learned in Geneva with them. John Knox started the Presbyterian Church. People from France who went back to France, to the church that was being persecuted, people who went back and died for these key ideas that they believed from the Bible. And Geneva housed refugees from England when Mary was murdering Protestants, burning them at the stake in England. And those people, when they returned shaped the Church of England as well. Which means we today actually owe a lot to Calvin. Calvin said when he died, he didn't want a statue to be built in his honour. In fact, he said he didn't even want to be buried in a marked grave. He died in 1564, aged 55, and he was buried in an unmarked grave. He lived by this principle of God's glory alone that salvation and everything is about God's glory. This isn't just for extreme people. Zeal to illustrate the glory of God is for all people. And until we have this zeal, we're missing out on our greatest joy and delight. We're missing out on our very reason for existing. Are we living for God's glory alone? Are we driven by an intense desire to illustrate God's glory? Or are we attempting to illustrate our own? 
Glorifying God it doesn't simply mean singing or adding praise God to the end of every sentence. As the kids saw before in 1 Corinthians, Paul adds that little bit where he says, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. God's glory, it, it affects the way we read the Bible. You know, it, it's all about Him. It's not all about me. He's at the center. It affects the way we come to church. It's all about God. We're not at the center. It's not all about what we get out of it. It's about Him and serving His people. God's glory affects the way we, we go to work tomorrow and it affects every part of the work we do. Do all to the glory of God. It means that we work hard and honestly to please God, not to bring glory to ourselves. It means we work motivated by the good of others. We work to provide for ourselves so as not to be a burden, to provide for our families, to pay taxes, to provide for the poor and and for God's kingdom. They're not religious things that glorify God and then the ordinary things that He doesn't care about. No, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. If it's vacuuming, you can do it to the glory of God. If it's changing nappies, you can do it to the glory of God. And I'm dead serious about that. You can change a nappy because you have to, or you can do it because God sees and God values our faithful care of the weak and vulnerable. Luther made this point, actually. He said, when a father... And he said, a father, when a father changes a nappy because it pleases God, because that's the role God's given him, Luther says, God, with all his angels and creatures, is smiling, not because that father is washing diapers, but because he is doing so in Christian faith. In any and every area of life, we can illustrate God's glory. Is this what we're living for? Because if not, we're missing out. We're made to glorify God. To live for God's glory is is a dangerous thing because depending on your gifts or your circumstances, your abilities, it could mean living here in Adelaide, starting a family here maybe, caring for your kids here, bringing them up healthy, happy and living for God's glory. Or it could mean taking them to Africa, restricting their opportunities endangering their education, maybe even their health and their happiness. It's a dangerous thing, but it's a joyful thing. Because until we live for God's glory alone, we won't find our true calling, our purpose in life, our reason for existing. Living for God's glory is actually our greatest joy and delight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a glorious God and that you seek your own glory. Lord, unless you did that, we could not know you. We could not delight in you. We would be deprived of absolutely everything, Lord. Our very existence, our salvation and the greatest joy that we can possibly imagine now and which will one day be ours as we marvel and glorify you forever in heaven. Lord, help us now to have a burning zeal to illustrate your glory. Lord, there's so much that stops us from doing this, so much that calls us away from our truest calling. 
Lord, remove those things. Help us to see them as the lies and deception that they are. And instead to realize that our greatest joy and delight is living for your glory and your glory alone. Lord, we thank you so much for who you are. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.